How are you all doing? This is the Jeff Salgado Show with my co-host, Mike Boyd. Today is Sunday, March 8th. It is roughly about 57 degrees. How you doing, Mike? Great. I love the fact that it's cold again. It is cold. It was a little rainy yesterday, but it's uh, it's not going to last very long. So nope. this is our spring. Is it spring yet? I think in a week. Same thing. Close Something enough. like that. Right on. Do um, we, we even get winter in Northern California? No. Not really. Not really. Not in California at all. Nope. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to let you guys all know that we had to postpone last week. I got really sick. I definitely had some serious Budweiser virus, some <laughs> coronavirus going on, some flu. It was nasty. It was a really brutal flu. And uh, it knocked me out to where my voice was shot. It was gone. It was like a straight frog. You guys would have laughed. It would have been horrible. <laughs> have you stocked up on your toilet paper and paper towels and rice yet? No, not at all. <laughs> I live in the United States. I shouldn't have to. Yeah. I'll just be running around wiping my hands, you know, wiping whatever. Just touch people's faces after you sneeze. It's no uh, big deal. Or just, I just don't, I don't cover my mouth. I just cough right there, <laughs> right, right in the air, right when I'm at the bus station or the... Starbucks just ha ha and everybody looks at me like what the fuck and I'm like yep I just did that what I want to get a mask and wear it and put the corona logo on it and just walk around it's horrible I know I mean it's really bad I mean uh, there's a lot of things going on obviously but I, I think uh everybody's talking about it I mean everywhere you look you're hearing coronavirus blah 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 you're hearing the coronavirus deniers you're hearing about how it's killing people it's Whatever. There's no shortage of information about it at this point, but I, I personally think it's definitely a fear of propaganda, and the people that are afraid, or that's exactly what they want you to be. So I'm like, fuck them all. I don't care. I'm still going to go to shows. I'm still going to go to work. I'm still going to go out in public and spend money. I don't care. It's not going to stop me from doing anything I want to do. What's ha- So South by Southwest is canceled. That's done. Elk Grove Unified School District for people who don't live in California. That's a suburb of Sacramento. They have postponed classes because of coronavirus. Um, like I said, Costco's are being fucking tours, concerts, yeah, shows. Your Costco's are being just pillaged. It's fear propaganda. I mean, because it's. I mean, everybody's like, oh, but you know, there's a hundred people that have died so far. I'm like, look at the stats. I mean, more people have died from the flu. We all know this. Okay, this is. There's no short of inf- information out there about this. My point being is that everybody needs to calm the fuck down. <laughs> like, save some toilet paper for some other people. They're going to need it. <laughs> Single ply at the fucking 7-Eleven, man. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> just be, being Native American. So yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I remember, I mean, I have a little part of Native American, but I, I remember talking to this guy. It was a really old Native American guy, and he was just like, you know, how disrespectful you know, this country is, they, they actually use trees to just wipe their ass. I mean, when they can use a cloth and I was like, Hey, that's a great point. (laughs) Do you really want to like keep that cloth around though? I mean, (laughs) well, that's what they used to do in the old days. Nobody died of coronavirus then. Well, I mean, we're worried about disrespecting the trees. That cloth came from the wool of like sheep and goats. So you got to use goats to wipe your ass now. Use nylon. Yeah. (laughs) It's horrible. I know. Anyways, today we have an interview with Chris Contos, who is a really good friend of mine. We have a long history. I've known him for years. Really good friend of mine. He's been some of my favorite bands in the world. Um, Attitude Adjustment, definitely. Uh, He was in verbal abuse for a little while in their uh, metal crossover years. 
and definitely Machine Head, who he's back with and touring and doing a great job of that. He's been in so many other bands, too. He's also playing in the Boneless Ones, which is an old 80s skate punk band that I really love. And I saw them at the Blue Lamp in uh, December. It's actually their last show in Sacramento, the Blue Lamp's last show. But it was really fucking awesome. Uh, last punk show, anyways. And so uh, we have a long interview with him. It's going to be broken up into two parts because uh, we get down like that. He's got some really good stuff. So without further ado, Chris Contos. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Good, brother. What's going on, Jeff? Not much. Glad to have you here. We're really excited. Been waiting for you for a long time. We were going to have you last week. Uh, I got really sick. I had the flu. My voice was shot. I mean, unless anybody wanted to hear a bunch of frogs because that's what I sounded like. Right. Right, yeah, yeah. But I, I, but didn't you guys? I heard you guys had uh, some illnesses on the road as well. Dude, it, it swept through our fucking crew. We have uh, 23 people on the tour, and uh, 17 people got sick, bro. And some people were like severely sick, like you know, urgent care. Oh my god! Visits. I had a had a 101 temperature that I broke. I haven't broke a fever since I was eight years old, dude. Wow. Um, I just, I kind of had survivor's remorse because it kind of went through me, um, like in four or four and a half days, I was feeling way better. And then some people were just sick for like 10, 12 days, bro. It was, it was fucking brutal. And there's just nowhere to hide on the bus. You know what I mean? You get on the bus and it's just a germ tube. (laughs) So how was it? So let us know. How was the tour? It was, uh, it was amazing, dude. You know, there's a definite differential between Europe and the States. Um, Europe seems to have this, uh, you know, much like I feel about music, uh, that it's still an incredible gift and um, a full, complete, you know, escape mechanism. And uh, I, I just, you know, this in the States, it's just, uh, and this is across the board, rock and roll, hip hop, metal everything uh the numbers are just down you know arena bands you know our stadium bands are now in like arenas you know uh and when you trickle that down to club acts you know it's just smaller numbers in the states but in saying that the people that are there no matter if it's 250 or 1500 they want to fucking be there right you get the kind of you kind of get the feeling that uh any more people or bigger numbers would start to just kind of dwindle into the uh, looky-loo category where they're just they're dead anyways you know they're not a real functioning part of the you know the space they're just a fucking ass standing there you know so in the states like we're a little bit more jaded right and we've seen everything (laughs) it's like how does my hood look right now should I wear it halfway on my head or all the way back or you know, how, do, how am I standing right now? You know, do my arms look cool folded? Yeah, I'm just a little bit cooler here and a little bit yeah, way jaded. And uh, it's just not as ferocious. But I'm not going to take it away from the people who went fucking berserk on this tour. You know what I mean? I mean, we had full-on great shows. Just lower numbers, man. Yeah, when I when I saw you guys in Oakland, man, that was it was pretty impressive. You know, I was talking about it on the last podcast, and I, I never seen Machine Head and... It was something to behold. I mean, just when you stepped on the stage, when you rode out on the stage, it it was amazing. The whole thing from there on, it was just on and the crowd was feeling it. The whole crowd was vibing it. Even in the very back, 
the very back row on the ground. I was hanging out by the bar and I just seen people rocking out. I was like, wow, all the way back here, they were just going off. It was nuts. Yeah. It was incredible, dude. It was a super emotional night. There was like, you know, redemption and, and cathartic across the board and just, you know, so many people that were like, either like yourself not seeing you know seeing us for the first time or people who have been there for every step of the way or people who hadn't seen us in 23 years or you know just friends and family and old colleagues and it was just it was over the top it, it really was i mean there were some amazing shows in new york you know the uh, san antonio albuquerque chicago uh you know, uh, there were some amazing shows, but uh, dude, playing the playing the Fox Theater was just ri- it was just ridiculous. You know, and for me, it fro- I mean, it, it it ranks up there with you know my in my body felt like it was one of my best performances of my life. You know, I was just I could feel my fingerprints on the sticks. You know, I was so <laughs> hyper aware of the playing and the parts and the click track and the the playback and just everything was just, it was a perfect night, dude. It really was. I got to ask you something. Did you, how long did it take you to write that drum solo? Cause that was amazing. So the, the drum solo. So like Rob asked me when this first started, you know, he kind of came in soft about it, but cause he knows my past and I've never done a drum solo before. I've only done drum solos, uh, doing Moby Dick whenever I do, uh, the custard pie, Led Zeppelin tribute thing. So, and that's just kind of like praying almost, you know, that's not even feeling like it's me. It's just like a conduit, you know, kind of thing. So it didn't feel like a solo. Right. I certainly. And I was, you know, when Rob asked me if I would do it because Dave did it and for them, it was a really cool part of the show. And it, you know, it wasn't your generic, uh, let's go get a beer moment. No, uh, not at all. You know, and you know, I always kind of felt like with my playing, you know, I'm kind of all over the place. So it, kind of is just a giant drum solo you know so to gild the lily always felt very uncomfortable and strange for me but um i didn't write it really dude it was just like what are like six things that i feel like i can do well and then also how can i make it still because i really wanted it to stay in form with the next song we were going into which was uh, Rage to Overcome, which is like all Tom's, right. you know, double bass, just full tribal madness for almost the whole fucking song. So I wanted to keep it kind of in that vein. And uh, also, you know, the, the theme of the whole thing was like cha-cha-cha. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it was a trip. And I was terrified every fucking night doing it, dude, because it's just, I'm not real cool with playing by myself ever. I don't like to rehearse by myself and just, you know, unless I'm playing to a record or, you know, in the headphones. Right. So it was terrifying, bro. It really was. And it was, uh, it was just gratifying that kids and fans got into it and that it wasn't just silence. You know what I mean? So um, I really tried to, I really tried to be aware of like the listener and, you know, that whole don't bore them to death with a bunch of, ridiculously long skill you know whose idea was it for the neil pert tribute i thought that was beautiful that was me and then you know i did it i did it raw you know without the band for like like four times 
Uh-huh. And then I was like, noticed, I noticed, you know, of course, that Rob was still doing like a guitar change and this other thing, and Logan and Jared were off stage ready to go each time I was doing the solo. So I said, would you guys be able to hit the chords to Tom Sawyer? And they were like, oh, fuck yeah. And they, you know, they worked it out in two minutes and we tried it. Then we uh, wrote the new, you know, light program for it. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just kind of an homage and uh, also like a fuck you to fucking January, dude. You know, so many fucking drummers died. And, yeah, dude. And people, it was like devastating, dude. I mean, I, I there was all a unified, like, real fucking sadness and um, a real mortality check, homie. You know, these Absolutely. are all of our contemporaries that are dying and elder statement and brass of the fucking drum world, you know? So I'm online with all these drummers and stuff, and we're all just like, yikes! You know, like, none of us were really on the sidelines in life and have pushed all of our filters to max and you know all that so it it was um it was just fucking weird dude so i just i, I gotta do something you know um the night i found out about reed mullen you know i was literally like it was two fucking minutes before i went on stage this guy came up to me and told me oh, and uh, i guess we were in tampa okay and uh i had just stopped drinking because i was kind of hitting it hard you know, just partying, not day drinking and being an idiot, but just after show, you know, by the end, by four in the morning, we were all pretty fucking soused. <laughs> and uh, I was just starting to feel it, you know, it was kind of like all of us were like, damn, you were wasted. Or the next night, oh, dude, you were wasted. So I just had stopped drinking, you know, and I was like, fuck, you know, he just drank himself to death, bottom line, you know what I mean? And, right. And when I knew him and when I met him, he was straight edge. And then, you know, I know that his, that all changed for him. And, um, yeah, dude, it was just brutal. And I was like, I just got to add something to the set. You know, we had, we added for a few nights, we added lost for words to the set, to the cover, that little cover thing we do at the end. Right. And then it was just like, I'm going to put this in the solo just to, you know, say something to all, you know, everybody, Sean Reiner, you know, all that. Right. Yeah, it was a trippy, trippy months, dude. Yeah, it was kind of, yeah, it was a kick in the face for sure. I, I, I wasn't expecting it, none of it. I was like, whoa, 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 like right in three in a row. They always have that that little three thing, and it, it's yeah, it's scary. Yeah, and then there was like other people too that were down, like, you know, Josh Peppa from, from, uh, DRI. from DRI, you know, and, and that was like fucked up, and it just kind of seemed to be coming in waves, you know, and then just personal friends too like two other friends of mine passed away right so it was it was kind of a lot <laughs> right and uh you know you and i've had a pretty extensive friendship and oh, yeah. uh, and uh just going back like did you see anybody on the road yeah i saw yeah i saw some cool people i met some cool people that i had never met before but you know you know how i roll jeff um you know i'm general public dude i'm i'm in it for the for the connection and uh right the the, take, the big takeaway, you know, which is long lasting friendships and love and and camaraderie and sharing the culture and and uh, just that exchange, you know, that's really the the crux of it for me, you know. So meeting people, seeing people again that I hadn't seen since way back, you know, and it, it went from people that I hung tough with that I, you know, 
saw on, on other tours or other trips all the way to just, you know, fans that I interacted with that were like, you know, you were, you know, cool to hang out with. It was like, oh, fuck. And they would give me a little reminder or something. And I, you know, I've got a pretty strong memory. So I'd be like, oh, yeah, that one bar with the giant fucking gothic doors with the big steps. We hung out on and they're like, uh, yeah. And then your buddy was like all tripped out. You know, I'll tell some story. And they were just like, what the fuck, dude? How do you remember that? <laughs> but therein again, those that's how important all these little connections and these little moments are for me. So right. it was super cool. And I just met some musicians and people, you know, your guy, Dave Sanchez, which was super cool because Havoc is so fucking badass. That's rad. You know, and I got to meet the feet, you know, and that was cool. And we hung out and just chopped it up, talk shop, you know, we all chilled. He was backstage in, in the dressing room with us you know, pretty much all night. So that was fucking cool. Talk shit about you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> anything good? No. Or anything you can say on the air? <laughs> without without getting me in trouble? <laughs> no, actually, you know what? We actually just, we uh, we connected on how much we hate Toby. Oh, yeah, Toby. Yeah, he's the he beast. Sucks. He's the beast. <laughs> Everybody hates him. It's just fucked up, dude. And then we... Both, we, you know, we're talking about the drumming, and then we kind of at the same time and said, and then guitar. Like, what the fuck? Like, rub it in our face, why don't you? You know? Like, then he's just on the guitar fucking killing it. You're yep. like, okay. Yeah, a lot right, of... Enough, enough with this guy. A lot of people don't know that he played guitar on the last two records. Like, yeah. all the rhythms. All of them. <laughs> just fucked up. Toby is... He's a, a savant. He is a phenomenon, for sure. Oh, he's total spectrum. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely something else. And I love him. Love him to death. He's man. my number one guy. He's my brother. And you are my number one. But guy. but you, on the other hand, I, I remember my first interaction with you was a. I think you stepped on my face at the farm in nineteen. I think it was eighty seven or eighty eight. Or it might have yeah. been. It might have been eighty six. It was the the show was DRI raw power, verbal abuse. Uh, attitude adjustment and I think Frontline I can't remember it was at the farm in San Francisco I don't remember what year it was it might have been 86 or 87 right, yeah that was 87 and you guys played and you fucking it was on the American Paranoia tour and, and or just yeah. that, that era and right when you started from the first song it just erupted into a full speed pit I just remember leather, leather jackets and bandanas all socking each other, and it's just going nuts, right? And the crowd from yeah. there on was nuts. And then later on, I think it was in Raw Power set, I just get this foot in my face, and I'm like, oh, it's fucking Chris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> A little bit of head walking going on. Yeah, dude. I mean, people were jumping off the PA stacks. It was nuts. I mean, that place used to rain, if you remember, like the sweat, the condensation. Oh, yeah, the sweat. It's fucking nasty. <laughs> but that's when you know you're at a motherfucker show is when it's raining. Yeah, inside. <laughs> oh yeah. So Fuck yeah. so speaking of which, attitude adjustment. I I, I want to go back in time to like your career and like you know retrospective on what you started out with. Like, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. That's fuck yeah, dude. For but sure. How did attitude adjustment start, and who was all involved, and how did that go? Well, right before that. You know, I'm I'm starting to find, you know, my little buddies and their older brothers that were all into, like, skating or BMX or, you know, 
out out in Concord, you know. So it was like kind of like older brothers that of guys that turned me on to like the first times that I heard Devo into Sex Pistols into Black Flag into Circle Jerks like L.A. Punk and you know that was kind of my introduction it was almost more of a skater kind of introduction out there in Concord, you know, and then. I kind of started digging and finding that I really liked a lot of New York stuff and a lot of stuff from Texas and a lot of stuff from the, from, you know, England, like TBH exploited, you know, those, you know, that ilk. And, uh, so that was formative, you know, because I was brought up in a classic rock household, you know, blues. Uh, my mom is just the fucking greatest. She took me to fucking everything, you know? Um, rarely ever had a babysitter uh for concerts you know they would just bring me so i mean we're talking led zeppelin the fucking the stones the who uh you saw led zeppelin oh 77 july 23rd last time they ever played america holy shit yeah i've got a picture on facebook of me making direct eye contact with john bonham as they walked on stage my stepdad was a master at getting to the, the premium spots in concerts and he goes, they're going to walk in over here. So we ran over there. And they walked in. And John Bonham just points at me and goes, oh, little kid. Like He's got a son almost my age at that time. So I was eight years old. Changed my life. Wow. But, um, but yeah, so my mom took me to everything. But I still, like, found, because my dad's a producer, you know, and after they divorced, my mom still continued to get all of his promotional records would come in these white boxes and there'd be like 10 albums in there you know and that's where i first saw the first kiss album alice cooper albums first black sabbath you know my mom would kind of just be like ugh, ugh, that's not ugh, okay she was looking for boss gags and you know jay giles and you know that stuff so that's how i started to kind of go to the dark side of everything you know and <laughs> kind of you know, that kind of twists that into form. So then it goes into punk rock and that whole thing. And uh, I started working for a band out in Concord called Part-Time Christians as a roadie. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, kind of did that. I would always help people into the show, you know, with their gear from the van, you know, whether it be condemned to death or MDC or verbal abuse. You know, I was just kind of one of those on hand, all hands on deck kind of guys with that. Right. So, so that roadie work was the first thing and then uh was working for at it for part-time christians they played a high school out in concord concord high in the quad at lunch and um of course the school didn't know what the fuck they were about to have happen <laughs> all these punks came out to that high school like came on campus and kind of overran the show from all kinds of high schools and even out in the city and stuff berkeley kind of was a madhouse so I see this kid, he's like tall, skinny, white spiked hair, and uh, I'm in the pit, you know, trying to get people to start slamming, and I, I grab him, and we do like, you know, the you know, the arms crossed uh, love loops, you know, we used to call it, where you fucking do the spin, you know, and fucking two people in like the counterclockwise vibe, and um, so we did that, we knocked a whole bunch of people down, we knocked a kid in a wheelchair over, actually, it was totally fucked <laughs> up, and uh, so after a bunch of people were gonna hang out and go get beers and go to this spot where people skate this this drainage ditch so we went there and we're hanging out and i have this like overwhelming sense of like familiarity with this guy i'm like this guy 
I know this guy from somewhere. And uh, later that night, we were all over at this guy Eric Juice's house, and we were all going to crash. He's got an awesome backyard with lawn chairs and shit. People just party around their little fire pit. He just crashed there at the house. His parents were cool. So he calls his mom, and he says, um, you know, I'm spending the night over at Eric's house, blah, blah, And his mom's kind of strict. You know, she's asking everybody's name. And he looks at me, and he says, what's your name? And I go, Chris Contos. And he puts the phone down at his hip, and he goes, oh, dude, we went to Tree Learning Center together. You know, because I'm, I'm, I went to, like, special schools and shit. I'm all dyslexic and fucked up as a kid. So, uh-huh. um, so I'm like, what? And then, then we totally remembered that we were in the fourth grade together. And, um, you know, it was like, we started remembering all this shit. Like, we both wore Kiss makeup on Halloween, the only kids in school that do it. And um, I was like, fuck. And so that's how me and Eric McIntyre met. At the time, he was still Smith. And uh, we started just jamming. It was just a two. It was a two man band, and it was called Homicidal Youth. And uh, we took a lot of shit for our name from people and stuff, you know. So we were kind of already like, "This name sucks," you know. And um, at the same time, we met Rick Straw uh, at a place called the Record Exchange, and we'd also bumped into him and met him at uh, the Record Vault in San Francisco. Now, Rick was the bass player, right? Right, yeah, right. yeah. I remember him. And he had never, he was, he's like a total fucking genius computer program. You know, his bedroom, he had like, the, it was like war games in his bedroom. You know, he had the old big black modem phone and uh, he had pro, word, word processors. And, you know, to this day, I mean, he does West Wind Industries and his software and applications have made people billions and billions of dollars he's like a computer programmer rock star and um, so what was cool is when we got him playing in the band there was we had like a real efficiency thing going on with like our accounting and and making stickers on our own and uh, it, it was just like we were making money dude back then you know selling our, our tapes and you know, we were able to kind of get a jump start on the scene really a little bit because of Rick keeping everything really like locked up. And, you know, it was just it was just something that we all kind of were always aware of it. Like, you know, wow, we have how much money? Like we can go do that tour or we can rent that van or we can you know do that. So um, we got together and we had we met this guy from Teenage Warning, Kevin Reed. And um he was super into it. So he was our first singer for about six and a half months. And then um, his, him and his friend were in San Leandro fucking around with some fireworks. And one of the fire, bottle rockets went in this guy's house and went like across the wood floor up into the couch. And they couldn't find it. And it was smoldering. And it ended up, it ended up being like a big old fire in this room in the house. Because Kevin was 18 years old, uh, the parents pressed charges on him. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he actually, you know, he went to Santa Rita. And at that point, dude, your singer is going to fucking prison. You know, we're 15, 16 years old. Fucked up. He's dead. You know what I mean? He's going to be raped and killed. You know, it's like life is over. You know what I mean? (laughs) We're like, we didn't know what to do. He was going away for eight months. And back then, you know, dude, time was like... 
thing ever. Right. And uh, so that's how the Andy Anderson and Chris Caparo era kind of happens with attitude adjustment. Okay. Uh, you know, that's when, you know, cause we didn't record with Kevin. Um, Andy and Chris came in. I went to high school with Chris Caparo and Andy Anderson and knew them as like stoner metalhead dudes. And, um, you know, the crossover thing happens. Right. And they're all into discharge and going to see, you know, GBH and broken bones. And, you know, I'm starting to go to see Possessed and Exodus and Slayer. And, you know, we're, we're bumping into each other. So that was already kind of happening. And then, you know, Andy's out at the vault all the time and record exchange. So that little connection between Rick, Andy, and Chris and myself and Eric was like, in a band true crossover you know mm-hmm. and um yeah we did that first demo with uh doug pipe bomb piercy from heathen dead serious uh, yeah dead serious demo four track um and uh yeah that blew up dude i mean that dead serious demo we we we'd get rid of a box a night at a show dude just bam five bucks a pop um and that's how everybody was rolling back then you know death angel you know, everybody had their sacrilege BC, you know, all the demos that were happening back then. And, um, but we were crushing a box a night, sometimes two, you know? Right. So we were like, we got to record. And that's when Andy approached Brian Schroeder, you know, Pusshead. Right. And, um, he came to rehearsal and said, he wants to put our album out. That, was, that was the Pusmont we like, Records, right? Yeah, on Pussmore, yeah. Right. And we were like, whoa, fucking crazy. And um, that just all happened really fucking fast, you know? Right. Uh, recorded that album, you know? And I, I think that record over time, dude, sold about 65,000 copies, bro, which is pretty, pretty big for a band back then, you know, to have reached its full album cycle and have sold that many copies, you know? Yeah, I bought it. I went to the music zone and pulled it out and looked at it and was like, oh, X and O, nice. Plus more. Right. Mine. <laughs> yeah. Instantly. And I already knew who you guys were, and you guys already I had love- a, you guys had a huge buzz in the Bay Area at that time. Right, and I just think that was because, you know, we were coming, we had two scenes that we could draw from and pull in, you know? And, right. And then crossovers, like, really happening, so everybody's investigating it and, and checking it out, so... Those were spectacle times for everybody, you know? It was like violence and PTC playing with Death Angel and Attitude Adjustment or Sacrilege Attitude Adjustment. You know, these these lineups were like really dynamic for the times, you know? Yep. Because like right before that, it's an instant fucking fight going to a show as a Mohawk, you know? I mean, right. you know, punk rock was still hay faggot in metal at that time. Right. You know, and fucking, who are these long-haired fucking dirtbags, you know? <laughs> right. In punk rock, you right, know? So exactly. It happened fast where all of a sudden everybody was fucking cool with it. I know? remember that. I remember going to shows and being like, "Who? okay, who's going to scrap? We used to have the skinheads to deal with, but everybody right. else was, like, pretty chill, and I was like, whoa, this is trippy. <laughs> but it was the yeah, best. I went to that Exodus Possessed. Or, you know, Slayer, Exodus, Possessed, Vermin show at Ruthie's. Mm-hmm. And I was one of, like, five punk rockers that were in there, and two of them were chicks. You know, Joanna Kayat and, uh, and what's it, Carol DMR. And then 
Johnny Puke and myself and Eric McIntyre and I think maybe one other person. And I mean, it was a bit of a record scratcher, dude. When we walked through the lobby of the fucking show, dude. I mean, people were like, "Who the fuck are these dudes?" You know, we're still in the whole heavy metal parking lot era, right? You know, punk rockers are from fucking Mars, man. What the fuck? Right. You know? Totally. So it was, but you know, we're circle pitting. And it's all still fist bang mania. Everybody's laying on each other onto the front row and <laughs> head banging. And we're like, damn, you can dive right on those people. <laughs> what a mattress. What a mattress of humans, you know? <laughs> but at the time, there was just enough of that start, that punk sim- assimilation to start to happen where you had Toby and Andy Licht and Peter Carter and Jeff Bovee and. You know, Alexis Olsen and all these, you know, Andy Anderson, they were all starting to get into that. They were realizing that there's this other thing going on with circle pitting and stage dives. And yeah, dude, it was the salad days, man. You know, and and just to be accepted at that time, you know, and and have a record out at 16 years old that people really fucking like and want to have you come play, you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty intense, man. It was, it was good times. The best times. They were the best times. Yeah, absolutely. Anyways, so what after what happened after that? You guys, uh, you did American Paranoia, which I thought was a huge success. Everybody knew who you were at that point. And then um, you guys did an EP after that, right? Yeah. So what happened was um, about six days before American Paranoia comes out, Andy and uh, Rick and Chris quit the band to go do Condemned Attitude. Because they wanted to bring in Keith Chatham from Condemned to Death. Okay. And Rick wanted to move to guitar, and they wanted to move Keith on to bass. And, and I just wasn't feeling Keith's energy. He's a very trippy guy, um, his own kind of animal and his own creature, and I just wasn't vibing with him. I and mean, later in life, we've you know become friends or whatever, but at the time, I just was not feeling it. And they also kind of wanted to go this kind of rock and roll like direction. And I was like, what the fuck? And dude, mind you, this is just days before the record is supposed to be released. This happens. Right. So, you know, Thanksgiving Day, actually, they gave me a call and came over. And, you know, it was ugly, dude. I mean, I, I beat them both up. (laughs) what i threw threw all their gear in the street dude i did not react well at all because thrasher magazine and uh you know brian they were starting to like pull strings and get ready to to push this album cycle and they just were quitting right and um it was just awful so that's why that record never gets toured um you know, there's never been a tour for that record back in the day, and it was it was intense. Right. You know, and so what I did was I got Kevin Reed back, and I got Eric McIntyre back. Because if you, you remember on the Attitude Adjustment record, um, you know, Eric McIntyre doesn't play on that album. Uh-huh. You know, we had a big falling out right before we recorded the record. Um, and he left, well, we kind of kicked him out before the recording of the album. So it was a series of fuck-ups, dude, and just being young and stupid and knee-jerk reactions in a few different directions. Sure. But, you know, so by, that was uh, Thanksgiving of 86. By 
March of 87, I had that other lineup together. Um, yeah, but dude, there was just so much going on with alcohol and mess and girlfriends and it just never really got its traction that the band really deserved. And I don't think it ever did, you know? And uh, around that time period, you guys were playing. I remember seeing you guys at shows a lot with uh, verbal abuse. Yeah. Yeah. We were, well, we were playing with everybody. I mean, the, the paper trail on Attitude Adjustment is pretty amazing. I mean, we played with all, almost all the notable punk bands you can play with. Yep. And uh, lots of shows with GBH, Poison Idea, fucking Fang, uh, verbal abuse, you know, uh, suicidal i mean it goes on and on i mean we played some amazing fucking gigs but it was just there was always like something some kind of curse or something in the water that just didn't ever get the traction that we we needed and i don't know if it was people's commitment level or a little self-sabotaging going on here and there i don't know but um yeah it was it was a trip dude you know we we ended up doing the no more mr nice guy record which was an EP um, in 88. And that's got Ray Vegas on it. And um, he was on guitar at the time, on bass at the time. Eric was on guitar. And then we did the Out of Hand record in 90, which was uh, Sean Sutton on guitar. Eric had switched to bass and Ray had switched to guitar. And um, that's pretty much, that's got a lot of like, metal on it and stuff we were really starting to dabble more in the metal thing and um yeah then we were off for like 19 years dude and from that point you know all kinds of other bands and stuff happened for me and for those other guys too and did you guys uh did you uh did you join verbal abuse right after that or when was it yeah i i joined verbal abuse um so i was still working as a roadie for verbal abuse during that time dude for a long time okay um and when i was off or whenever they needed help and i did some tours with them and was working for greg james and in 89 uh greg james father passed away and he was having his third daughter and he was taking over the family business which was a very prominent old pharmacy in palo alto and uh he called me up and I knew this was happening. They were going on tour. They were they were going to replace MDC, who wasn't able to get visas because of some legal issues with uh, Franco and Ron. Mm-hmm. So they offered the tour to verbal abuse. So I knew they were going. I also knew that there wasn't going to be a roadie or anything like that, so I wasn't going. And Greg called me up and said, hey, do you think you'd be able to go to Europe? And I was like, fuck yeah I'll go to Europe man this sounds great man anything you need and he's like well I need you to play drums and I was like what (laughs) and then he broke it all down to me and I was like fuck so I had you know four three hour rehearsals with them I mean I knew the music but I'd never played it with them right Um, we did four rehearsals and we took off that was my very first time to Europe uh, when we got there the day we got there was two days before the Berlin Wall came down. Oh, wow. So the whole fucking, and we go right into Berlin, is where we, we land in Frankfurt and drive straight to Berlin. And um, it was fucking chaos. 
handed us the keys to his flat. He said, I'm going to my mother's um, to be with my family. You guys have everything you need here. I've got beer here, food here. you got all your bedding and everything. Bye. And we were just standing there like, okay, so World War Three is kicking off, right? I mean, we're like, we didn't know what the fuck was going on. And we watched that whole thing that you guys all watched on the news, front row. And I saw all the, the pickaxes and the hoses and the people up on top of the wall and the whole opening of Brandenburg Gate. And then we, after that all happened, they just came and grabbed us and we took off on that tour. And that tour was almost three months long. So we were on tour for a long fucking time, you know. It was just an intense time being in verbal abuse, too. Lots of fighting with, you know, there was lots of, you know, the VA rocks your liver aspect is everybody wants to do that. So they've got copious amounts of fucking drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and you felt challenged the whole time to, you know, beat the gauntlet, you know. And oh, my God. It was intense, dude. It was really intense. I mean, there are, there's tons of stories that are in that that touring cycle I did, you know, and we went back after that, uh, like six or seven months later and did a whole nother three months tour. Did you, uh, did you beat anybody up? Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, See what happened was like Scotty, you know, Scotty was a super caustic fucking really agitated fucking person back then. And, you know, he would get into it with somebody and then I would come over and try to be the voice of reason and then somebody, you know, Scotty usually would throw a punch or throw something at somebody and it would blow up. And then, you know, I'm not too smart, but I can lift heavy things, you know. <laughs> I'd end up beating the fuck out of a few people, you know. <laughs> you know, it's not even really me, dude. I mean, it sounds like I'm... I'm, I'm like, no, it's, really, not. it's really like the teddy bear gets slapped. Totally, you know? totally. And so... You know, that's really like not my thing, but it was it was a thing with verbal abuse. You know, I'll tell you one quick one. Um, we we played Paris and um, we were with, hanging with all these these dudes and their girlfriends, you know, and some other girls and stuff. And we go to this bar and um, when we get there, Scotty hangs outside with this girl he's you know making out with or whatever. And. Uh, I go to the back of this bar and this bar has got big giant floor to ceiling windows so I can see out to the street, but I'm still way in the back of this packed bar. And then all of a sudden I look out there and I see Scotty surrounded by a bunch of like skinhead rockabilly types. Oh shit. And, uh, they got him surrounded. And then I'm like, um, I'm going to go outside. So I start doing the, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me. I'm like making my way through. And it, as I'm watching, it starts to escalate. He gets pushed from behind. He turns around. He gets pushed in the back from somebody else. He's starting to get gnip knocked And, uh, boom, they were on him, dude. And, you know, at that time, he had hair down to, like, almost his waist. Yeah, I remember. They all grabbed a fucking rope, dude. They had, like, each had, like, a huge piece of his hair. And they were kicking and punching. And he was just swinging his arms, like, flailing. And uh, so I bolt outside. I... <laughs> I jump up on this car and I do a stage dive on the whole pack. <laughs> that's awesome. Like I just go. I've, just I've, like, I've felt that before. I know what that's like. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, I knock everybody down and they all jump up 
And that's when the rest of my band came out, plus these three guys. You know, we had one guy on the road, Sebastian Fuchs from uh, the Dicks. The nice. bass player from the Dicks was our merchandise guy. And then we had this guy, Tank, and this guy, Tarzan, both French punk rockers. And the seven of us took on, literally, dude, took on 25 French nationalist skinheads. Oh, shit. And we were knocking them out the fucking box, bro. I mean, they were... They were getting fucking served, you know? And at one point, they, um, a bunch of guys jumped on me, and I got stabbed in the back. But I really didn't know that I had been cut. Um, and then another guy had got Scotty down and kicked him in the face really fucking hard. He was on his all fours and got kicked in the face. And uh, that's when it exploded. Even some of the people in the bar started to attack the, the Nazi guys. I guess they were like French nationalists more than like like swastika Nazis. Yeah. Um. So, and then boom! Right then, fucking van loads of fucking cops with German shepherds and fucking these wicker oh, shields. Shit. Have these, and they 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 jumped out and they fucking they knew. I think they knew exactly what the fuck was going on. And maybe we looked so polarized in our fashions that they separated all of us. They pinned all those guys up against the wall, and then they made like a gauntlet with dogs and cops to our motorhome, put us on our motorhome, and gave us a one. One of the vans came over and just escorted us down the wrong way down the street, and told us to fucking bounce. Right. So that was fucking nuts. Andy broke the boxer bone in his hand. Scotty had a fucking. He probably had a fractured cheekbone. Oh man. But then everybody, real, like, I get out to grab some water in the motorhome, and everybody's like, dude, you're bleeding. And I look, I reach back, and I felt a pretty good fucking gash in my back. I'm like, what the fuck? And they're like, oh, dude, you got cut. And that's when we got a phone call from our friends that were left at the bar, because we had already made it back to the apartment where we were staying. And they were all, is Chris all right? Is Chris all right? We saw him get stabbed. So... Yeah, dude, there was lots of shit like that, dude. Like, weird fucking fights that would break out. Um, it was just weird shit with verbal abuse, man. There was always some weird voodoo going on with that band. Much expected with a band name like Verbal Abuse. Right? <laughs> right? But, right? but exactly. uh, so, so tell us about Machine Head and how that started. Well, you know, that was the era uh, uh, for me where I was, like, juggling bands. You know, at one point I was in... In verbal abuse, Grinch. All right. This interview will be continued on part two of the Jeff Salgado show that will air Wednesday, March 11th. So stay tuned, everybody. Thank you guys for listening. Take care.